Hey guys, you're listening to the Tasha Labs podcast, and today I want to talk about the multi-chain thesis because. For those of you who have your long-term memory function relatively unimpaired, you know that.、Uh, remember back in 2021, you saw like、uh, every other day a new blockchain pop up, right? Something that's going to overtake Ethereum. And、uh, the multi-chain thesis was very popular at the time. You had the meme of Solunavax at the end of 2021, and I myself, I was very bullish about this、uh, multi-chain thesis because I was saying, look, guys.、Um, Liquidity in the crypto world is increasing, and、uh, user base is diversifying. Not everybody is going to go to Ethereum, and also Ethereum mainchain was really, really slow in the top of bull market, right? So different types of communities and use cases gotta aggregate at、uh, different levels. So you're going to see these,、uh, you know, new things popping up, new blockchains pop like pop up that will、uh, get their own tractions, and then eventually everything will need to be connected, right? But that was based on the、uh, the the base assumption is the liquidity into the crypto metaverse is going to continue increasing, right? But then 2022, you see things abruptly、uh, went the other way, and then in a few months, this、um, all the like other blockchains, including you know L2s and L1s, the liquidity、um, like、uh, TBL or you know user bases like abruptly just dropped. Throughout 2022, right? So、um, this is like、uh, obviously now it all sounded like、uh, it felt like a distant memory because things happen so fast in crypto. But I feel it it will be a useful like at this time we see like the crypto market is taking a breather, right? So after last year's、uh, significant drop, now we are like、uh, stabilizing.、Uh, we'll see how things go, right? But but that's、uh, another discussion. But today I want to discuss. Where we are in terms of this、uh, multi-chain thesis, is there a there there still, so to speak, right? So for that, I invited my friend uh, uh, Sergey Gorbunov, of,、uh, who's the founder of Axelar, who's you know basically live and breathe、uh, <laughs> this、uh, multi-chain world、uh, every day to join us on the discussion. So、um, this should be interesting. I'm very、uh, looking forward to hear what Sergey has to say about the.、Uh, You know the multi-chain prospect going forward. Hey, Sergey, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Great to see you again. Okay, so、um, just for those、uh, who don't know, can you just like give us、uh, loop us in on like what what is XLR and、uh, what it's doing? Yeah, so XLR is a decentralized.、Uh, Interoperability network, right? Its job is to connect different blockchains, different layers uh, that uh, you know are fragmenting the blockchain ecosystem and unite everything together. At the end of the day, we want to enable developers to build across the whole of Web three, and we want to enable users to interact with any asset, any application, any chain with one click. And so, Axler is building the infrastructure to get us there along the way. So you started when? We started、uh, two years and a bit ago. Yeah. So in like in in like 2021, early 2021.、Uh, that's correct. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So so when you started, it was like this、uh, multi-chain world was just、uh, starting to emerge, right? And then it it、mm-hmm. grew rapidly、uh, at the end of、uh, 2021, and you know at, that was the hike, and then、uh, you know promptly crashed down everything. So. <laughs> How has how 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 has it been for you and like、uh, throughout this、uh, roller coaster? How how are things going now? 
I, I mean, things are still going quite well, I think, for Accelerate. Like, we're continuing to see in, in, in increased uh, activity. I think, you know, what we try to do is build, like, a network and a stack that can sort of pivot and actually adjust to the market demands, right, and, like, be universal and generic enough. Um, I think, actually, when we're starting out, there was no multi-chain thesis. There was actually, like, Bitcoin and Ethereum, mm -hmm. right? And our first go-to-market was, like, bringing Bitcoin to Ethereum, right? And people, oh, this is going to be awesome, awesome. But we built, really, the stack to be able to plug in new connections as easily as possible, right? And then when we saw the, the multi-chain, you know, uh, activity on other chains, on avalanches of the world and things like that, we actually just plugged them in at the protocol layer. We saw a lot of traffic and things like this. Um, so, yeah, kind of a bu building the stack that's robust and sort of generic enough that you can adjust to the market dynamics, I think is actually, you know, qu quite important. And so, uh, you know, Bitcoin is still not live on the network because we've, we've actually had a lot of, you know, demand from uh, you know, from other providers that, that wanted to have connectivity. Yeah. So, well, you got a tough job because like you said, things change, like, um, you gotta like be flexible. Um, yeah. you know, well, but, but everything infrastructure, like, uh, you know, all the work, like you have to do to invest in building stuff. And then you also need to be very sensitive to the demand conditions. So, um, I'm curious to know, like, uh, um, you know, compared to like now, compared to maybe a year ago um, or a year and a half ago, how is your um, outlook? How is your uh, outlook about the blockchain uh, fragmentation or segmentation or multi-chain world uh, ha has changed? Yeah, I think my thesis, you know, on multi-chain is still very strong, and I think it actually relies on very technical aspects of it, right? Like, the reality is that, you know, if you, if you trace it back, kind of a, why we saw an explosion of other, you know, layer um, layer ones and layer twos is because Ethereum could not provide a consistent, reliable environment for the users during high peaks of transactions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, gas costs were very high, you know, people were like failing to submit their transactions. And we actually see that, saw that last week, right? When like a swap on Uniswap was, you know, like $500, right? Like during another peak. So the reality is that, you know, one chain on its own has a certain limit of how, how far it can take us, right? If we are to continue growing the Web3 ecosystem with more applications and more users, right now we're like super small, right? Like as an ecosystem, right? You know, the amount of users and the amount of traffic that we generate is like nothing comparable to, you know, kind of a Web2 applications. Mm -hmm. But if we are to continue scaling, bringing more users and more applications, you're going to have to isolate resources at the technical level, right? Like meaning that, you know, your application could run maybe its own environment and provide a consistent consistent user experience, right? For your customers, my application could run like in a slightly different environment, or maybe it's the same environment, but we're still uh, very isolated in terms of performance. So that when the, you know, when there is time, like my transaction still costs me like a dollar or $10, not $500, right? Like, you know, if we, if we have these types of peaks uh, in user experience, we're not gonna be able to grow the space. And so this is, a, I think my fundamental like uh, thesis is that if we grow, they're going to need to be more resources that are available. Those resources can be available through different ways. Like you can have sharding, you can have layer twos, you can have layer ones, you can have data availability layers, all those components. And then the and then the question is, how do you kind of stitch them together, right? How do you connect all those all those layers? So right now we are back to you know um, lower levels of activity. You you can you know submit transactions in a cheaper way on on one chain and things like that. But that's not the world that we 
can end up with if we if we grow and right if we keep on growing you just have to isolate resources um, web 2 doesn't run on a single database and a single network for very technical reasons because there's no single database that can support <laughs> all of the traffic and so i think in web 3 you know it's it's fundamentally very similar so obviously in, in over the past 12 months or so we've seen the reverse happen right so in 2021 uh so 21 21 started ethereum had like basically a hundred percent of the tvl in the crypto world and then a year later it dropped like 40 percentage points or something like a very precipitous like drop right so right now mm -hmm. it's back to like uh, i think it the lowest was like april uh, March, April of last year, and now it's back to like about the 60% of the TVL. And if you, and also um, the Ethereum L2s also grow uh, over last year. So I'd say like uh, maybe the entire like L2, L1 add together, maybe 70% of uh, the crypto world. Why do you think that this consolidation happened? Consolidation happens because I think people want to go to uh, to the safe ecosystems, mm -hmm. right? The ecosystems that are going to be there for a while, the ecosystems that they're familiar, and the ecosystems that have the biggest communities, right? Um, that's I think reason number one, and reason number two is like to your point. I think layer twos are starting to pick up more and more in Ethereum. They offer you know cheaper transaction fees, offer better developer environment than the layer one itself. Mm -hmm. uh, you know the way that I view actually layer two is like. It's actually its own chain with a single bridge to Ethereum, mm -hmm. right? Like that's how how you can think of it. Um, but the the environment there, you know, is 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 pretty good. It still kind of has close proximity with other layer twos, um, and uh, yeah, I think people want to experiment less, right? In in, in these types of activities, so they want to go to uh, kind of a, the safe house. And I would say Ethereum and layer twos has been like the safe house. Yeah, so um, then the Ethereum maxis would tell you, well, this is going to be the way uh, <laughs> uh, nope. because uh, L2 is going to take over um, all the things like uh, you want cheap and fast transactions. You can all, you know, do that uh, using like Ethereum L2. So other chains will not uh, have a chance, basically. Uh, what's your view on that? It, it may be, we don't know that. And it, but I, I think the point is that layer twos actually need interoperability just as much as layer ones, right? Mm -hmm. So right now layer twos have interoperability, like I said, like with one bridge Ethereum, and it's actually very you know expensive and slow in many instantiations, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we actually work directly with a lot of layer twos and we've seen a lot of activity from them, like, like Arbitrum, right? Like Optimism is gonna go live. I think we're also gonna work with the base chain as well. Um, so yeah, like layer twos are, still different networks that need interoperability. I think that's one, th one thing. Even if layer twos kind of end up dominating the whole world, you still need connectivity between them. You still need efficient routing. I think the second point that I, I think I just want to make is that there's a very big difference between like the way that people have been thinking about interoperability, which is like, how do I connect A and B? Mm -hmm. And what does the user and developer experience need to look like when we are in a world of even, let's say, many layer twos, mm -hmm. okay? In that world, the developer doesn't want to have to think about how do I build like on this chain or that chain. They just want to be able to deploy everywhere, potentially their use case. Like let's say you're launching a token, you just want to launch it everywhere and have users interact with it. To do that, you actually need more than interoperability protocols. You need various like application layer interoperability protocols. You need infrastructure to deploy, to manage across multiple environments, to be able to perform efficient updates and so on and so forth, right? And so that's how we view, you know, uh, some of the role of Axler and uh, the stack that we're building is just thinking about, it's not just how do I connect A and B, but 
how do developers build in the world of many, let's say, layer twos, if layer twos end up dominating, if there is, you know, hundreds of layer twos, how do you build across all of them, right? It's, it's not that easy. And you actually need like a very specific infrastructure to do that. But what, what, so, so if I'm an application, like why, why would I want to do that though? Why can I not just build on Arbitrum and why do I need to deploy to other chains? Yeah, well, uh, you know, look at uh, Uniswap as an example, mm. right? Like Uniswap deployed on one chain, then they deploy like on another chain, then deploy another chain. Like what's the point? You want to grow user base, right? right. Uh, you know, Arbiter maybe has some users, maybe Optimism has some different users. You don't want those users to be disconnected, right? At the end of the day, you know, as a user, you should be able to go and use the application with one click, right? And if application is not designed in the interchain or multi-chain world, whatever that is, you are creating a friction for the users, Right. And whenever you create an friction for the users, you know, I think then we're just fighting uh, in the onboarding path to get more and more users to benefit from this technology. Right. So um, as a developer, yeah, your, your point to deploy multiple chains is distribution, you know, distribution and distribution. Right. You distribute your liquidity, you distribute to more users and you have a much better, simple, uh, simpler user experiences that new users as they approach your application or your ecosystem can interact with it without having to think, how do I move my tokens back and forth, right? Which is very, very painful. Mm, right. So I think, it, okay. So it sounds like uh, you are saying this, well, I think the real world, uh, uh, real world uh, analogy will be like, if you're Coca-Cola, you're a US company, why are you going to, you know, expand to China or to Brazil um, just to access new customers? So the same rationale is for blockchain applications. Um, was the was the underlying assumption that the clientele, the user base of different chains, do not overlap one hundred percent? Which is, uh, I don't know, like how true that is. But I think in Ethereum ecosystem, you probably overlap more because if I use Arbitrum, I'm definitely using Ethereum mainnet. But uh, still, you can. You know, if if we see some growth going forward, even just from the Ethereum ecosystem itself, you're going to have some differentiation because the L2s will need to, they will have to differentiate themselves in some way um, by specializing or providing some, you know, specializing in certain sectors or certain features. Otherwise, uh, you know, it's uh, very hard to compete, right? So, so I agree with your point. It's, uh, you know, it's a, uh, essentially making it easier for the developers to get additional distribution with uh, relatively less hassle, right? So how do you do that, like in terms of your approach? Yeah, um, yeah. so I, actually I just wanted to make one more point. It's, it's before we uh, talk about how we do this. I think the other good analogy you can actually think of is like, let's say you're building like a Starbucks, you know, retail store, right? Uh, you want to give a consistent user experience to your users, right? Even if it's the same user that goes from one, you know, from one chain to another, mm -hmm. you want to make sure they can come in and actually access your application. You know, they they know what you know what coffee they're gonna get, right? Mm -hmm. they, they they know what to order and so on and so forth. And I think like providing that experience to even the the users that travel across this layer twos, right, is what you want to offer as a developer, and that does require kind of connectivity across you know the, your applications. Um, so how do we do that uh, to, to your question? Um, we do this by building what I call is like full stack interoperability, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so meaning that at the networking layer, there is a core kind of routing infrastructure protocol that connects, you know, 
chain A with chain B, layer two with layer one, and so on and so forth. And that layer can route information, route packets and messages, right? So you can think of it as a kind of an air transit control system where you can take a flight from one city to the other, you know. Um, but then on top of it, there are various layers that we're building to enable the developers to build these types of experiences, right? And enable the simple user experiences um, that include things like gas services, mm. right? So as an example, your user on uh, Arbitrum, you want to execute a transaction and that transaction actually needs to be executed like on, you know, on the optimism, okay? Uh, the previous way of doing it is that you bridge manually your tokens, you execute another transaction, you swap, maybe you go back to, to your original home chain. So it's a lot of steps along, along the way. With the interoperability like infrastructure, gas services, you can let user execute one transaction that will then take place and execute across multiple chains without them even having to pay gas, right? So they would pay gas only on the source chain. So you can think of it as like account abstraction techniques, right? Where from the user perspective, you don't think about how to interact with individual chain. You can submit your transaction in one chain, you can pay gas only once. And even if that transaction needs to execute across like two different DEXs or two different chains, you would still go through and you get your result where you held your wallet, right? You don't have to think about everything else. And so this is what we call as like a service layer built on top of Axler um, that developers can leverage to build these types of experiences. There are additional services that we're building like monitor and SDKs, you know, simple deployments of script and so on and so forth. And so that's why I call it like a full stack of interoperability, whereas there is the, the core transport layer, right? And then there's a service layer for developers and users to actually abstract the complexity of interacting with multiple chains. So, so are you are you seeing um, are like what's the demand growth are you seeing in that type of uh, use cases? Because uh, you gave an example, right? I, which I think is a little bit abstract, but <laughs> I, yeah. you know, like uh, especially in this market conditions, right? So, what's what's actually the user? What's the actually the demand for that kind of uh, you know use cases? Because we've been talking about like cross chain messaging. Um, since like for over like uh i think it was like a really popular narrative maybe like a year ago or so yeah um but then really but it's, well i think part of the reason is general market conditions right you you haven't really seen uh, the need for cross-chain uh messaging has dropped because liquidity has concentrated back to the ethereum ecosystem so i think that that's really like that you can, that's like a short-term business cycle impact on this kind of use case, so to speak. But is there a, like a long-term um, use case for this type of, uh, you know, uh, functionalities, uh, you know, including what you, we said, like doing, doing like a one transaction, one chain, and then there should be some other uh, actions uh, to take a place on another chain. What is like, uh, have you seen like much of like a concrete example for these type of use cases taken off? Yeah, so I think one concrete example that uh, I think is taken off more and more is to be able to do kind of a cross-chain swaps in a decentralized way, mm. right? Very, very simply. So right now, if you want to swap one coin to an for another across different layer ones or layer twos, what do you use? You you mostly go to a centralized exchange, yes. right? And, you know, you, you, uh, it will custody your funds and you can do those transactions. I think there's been a lot of talk in the industry about how do you make this, you know, decentralized, right? Like, how do you have 
really decentralized DEX or a combination of DEXs that can swap, you know, ETH for AVAX in one click, mm. right? And uh, this is the use case that we're actually seeing more and more demand on. There's like a protocol called like a squid router that went live on top of the Axel network. And it's actually done very, very interesting in where it composes existing decentralized exchanges using, you know, stable assets to route liquidity between them, right? So the, the idea is that you have some liquidity maybe on Ethereum main chain, maybe you have some liquidity on like Optimism in a DEX. You don't want to have to build new liquidity to just swap, you know, um, Optimism token for like Ethereum tokens, right? But you can combine the liquidity together using stable assets, right? So maybe every token on a source chain is paired with a stable asset. Every token on the destination chain is paired with a stable asset. And so for a user, then you can enable one-click experience where you say you submit a transaction, it gets swapped for like stable assets, stable asset is routed to another chain, gets swapped for another token, and you get a token on the destination chain. You don't have to do all those five steps manually. It's like one-click and then the, the transaction is, is getting executed, right? So this is a you know use case I think that we're seeing more and more um, demand on. The other use case is actually around stable coins and stable assets, mm-hmm. right? So kind of a circle. Uh, we're actually working with them on kind of helping them compose USDC through their bridging protocol and like the Axelot infrastructure, where similar questions come up. Where you know I think actually Circle was a first. Um, first user that experienced the pain of multi-chains, mm. right? So they launched on Ethereum, then they're like, oh, we need to launch like on layer two, on this layer one. And then they're like, oh, how do you make sure it's the same USDC, right? Like, because every bridge will create their own version of USDC. So they started going back and saying, what is our interoperability story now looks like, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's something I think, you know, we're helping Circle, but we're also seeing a lot of other, you know, stablecoin issuers or even like, um, you know, central bank digital currencies that are, um, that are, research in the space still, but they're trying to understand if I build on this chain, how do I make sure my coin or my stable asset is available from other chains? How would developers interact with it? How do users interact with it? Do I have to build like new liquidity and things like that? And, you know, I think interoperability and be able to issue assets in an interchain native way, right? Where it's available in all chains from the beginning, like you can move it back and forth. You don't have to think about fragmentation. Um, I think for the new asset issuers is, uh, you know, is, is pretty, pretty important. Yeah, so so you mentioned like uh, in terms like cross chain uh, uh, swap, for example, you said cross chain swap through the stable through stable coins, right? So you basically route the stable yeah. coin from one chain to another. When you say route, do you mean like just like a you know burn the stable coin in one chain and you know issue on the other chain? What what's the mechanism for routing? Like in 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 terms of Axelar's yeah. approach. Yeah, great question. That's where it depends how the asset was issued, right? If the asset was issued on one chain and then you use Axler, you know, you can create its wrapped versions on all the other chains, then, you know, if you go from the home chain, then it gets like locked in the protocol, then you get like a wrapped version that gets minted, but then you, the wrapped versions automatically swap for the native version. So you don't actually see that wrapping and unwrapping, right? Mm-hmm. For the new generation of assets that we're seeing that are what I call is like interchain native from day one, then they're automatically like burnt and minted across chains, right? Um, if the asset has been issued before, then you have to like wrap it and wrap it. But if it's interchain native, then you, you know, you burn and mint it. But all of those mechanics, um, I think it's important that actually abstracted away from the users, right? So if an application is built to leverage these protocols, application does all of that stuff. 
from the user perspective, it abstracted away. They get like native assets right away. They actually take very minimal bridge risk, right? Because there's no like big liquidity or like wrap pools of like tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars they have to deal with. You always end up with a native asset. So it's a, I think, a, you know, the next generation of applications that has both the assets issued interchain and like thinks about the UX and the design actually takes very small, you know, security risk and has a superior UX. Yeah, I, I can certainly see that to be better. Um, though you, you know, if you have like two chains and you have USDC on those two chains, you're still like two separate liquidity pools. So in that sense, it's like still not really that efficient, right? So you have to swap on Ethereum main chain and swap the other side and uh, you have to have su sufficient liquidity for like all the token pairs involved uh, on these chains. Is there, um, is this something that that we can solve in the future? Do you think that it will still like uh, continue to be this case? No, I don't think it will continue to be in this case, right? I, I guess like when you say it's not as efficient, you mean like from the economical side, right? Because you have to do like two swaps or things like that. Or when you say inefficient, like what are you? You you you, you have like uh, you have you need to like uh, have like liquidity pools uh, for USDCs on whatever chains you want to swap to, right? Yeah, no, that, that that's a good point. Yeah, I think like the, you know, the reason this this kind of works today is because you don't have to create new liquidity pools or anything else so, like you can show demonstrate the use case. There is another level of like interchain native applications that I think, um, you know, some developers exploring. How do you do that completely natively, right? So you can always imagine creating a pool between an asset on one chain and an asset on another chain kind of a directly bypassing messages back and forth and synchronizing the state of an application, right? In the same way as like on Ethereum, you, why, why can you create a pool between assets on Ethereum? Because, you know, you have an application that has visibility in both assets, right? And knows what's going on with them then. So with the general message passing kind of a protocols, you can do that across chains the same way, right? You can say, you know, my part of my application logic lives on one chain, part of my application logic lives in another chain. When a user pulls in, maybe, you know, they pull in like uh, their liquidity on both sides and we view this as a uniform pool um, of liquidity and we have better, you know, capital efficiency and so on and so forth. Um, it will take a little bit longer for these types of applications, I think, to emerge. Um, I think we're seeing something with like a cross-chain borrowing lending protocol. So like Prime Protocol is one example where um, they're building a completely like interchain experience where you can deposit token from, you know, one chain um, a message is sent to another contract on another chain to release like a loan against it uh, to you. Um, so, so yeah, uh, I think we can do better economically, but it will take kind of a re-architecture and redesign of some of these applications to be interchain native. Yeah, and we probably don't have the demand condition to support that uh, at this stage. Um, I think at this stage, yeah, like things like just composing applications across different, you know, layer ones, it seems like sufficient enough mm -hmm. for, you know, a lot of the use cases and like, you know, you can continue to in the, the, the parameters and make it a lot more sort of capital efficient. So uh, what are you seeing in terms of like uh, um, usage growth? Uh, in your different uh, segments of your um, user bases, which which chains or you you mentioned like cross chain swap is sort of like a gross area, like a I would say like a more of a immediate uh, like a basic kind of use cases in the short term. What 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 are the like some of the chains or some other like application you're seeing growth like recently? 
Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of uh, traffic historically would have been processed in between like Cosmos and Ethereum chains or, you know, Solidity chains like Ethereum, like Arbitrum, uh, you know, some of the other layer twos. Um, I think now we are starting to see even more traffic like through layer twos. Um, we actually have a dashboard like doing analytics. It doesn't have all the chains, but I think it captures all the chains. So Arbitrum, I'm looking right now at it, like has the most you know, user growth. Um, Avalanche is still pretty, pretty solid and continues to grow. You know, Ethereum continues to grow pretty, pretty rapidly um, and a lot of like, yeah, Cosmos traffic. Yeah, is this public? Can people look at your dashboard? Yeah, it's public. I mean, there are two things. A, there's like xrscan.io, mm. which has like pretty comprehensive things. And then Dune Analytics, there's a duneanalytics.com uh, forward slash Axel network forward slash Axler. I think Dune doesn't capture all the chains that we support. So it's only like, you know, six chains that they actually index, but you can see there. Okay, great. We, we will post a link, okay? Um, if people want to want to check it out. Um, so, so, so you mentioned, you know, for, for, so we've established that there is a demand, you know, for applications to deploy cross chain because people want distribution and you user bases that they have low cost access to. So that is like a, that is like a basic foundation for, for some kind of, uh, uh, demand for like cross chain, um, messaging protocols like XLR. Um, and you mentioned one, like a, a main challenge for developers to do, to, to, to do like a cross chain applications. It's the cost in deployment, complexity in deployment. Um, what, what, what are other challenges that you're seeing for, for the like cross chain, um, applications to take off? Because, uh, obviously we haven't seen a whole lot, <laughs> uh, so far. Yeah. I mean, I think we haven't seen a whole lot because the infrastructure is not there yet still. Right. Like, I mean, I think we're building a part of it. I think a lot, a lot of other folks are building, um, like I said, it requires like a full layer. So as a developer, what do you need? You need. You know, you need the cross-chain protocols. That's like the basic, okay, mm -hmm. checkbox, right? Um, then you need like simple SDKs and APIs you can use, right? Um, that's like a layer has to be there. You need monitoring, right? So when a user submitted a transaction from one chain, you want to know where it's at, mm -hmm. you know, how long it's going to take. You want to help it speed up if, if it needs to and, and things like that. So you need like a monitor and a data layer, right? What else do you need? Well, you actually need, you know, kind of a, you know, recovery layers, right? So for instance, if a transaction doesn't go through, like somebody has to be able to, you know, submit it and execute it, right? So you need, you need that. All of those layers actually take time to build, mm -hmm. right? They're not, you know, six months projects. Um, you know, I think if you look at the, the development of the, of the internet, like, like all of that interoperability infrastructure was developed for 20 years, you know, before a single application like email used it, right? Uh, in the blockchain space, I think we're actually in a reverse position where we saw some demand in the very early days, right? Like with, you know, with, within the last bull cycle, um, but the, the infrastructure is going to continue being built, I would say, over the next, um, you know, the next five to, to 10 years, frankly. So how about securities? Do you, do you think that is uh, preventing people from, uh, from doing any like more experiments with, with these like cross-chain applications? Yeah, I mean, security is a big topic, right? We've seen, you know, all kinds of hacks uh, throughout the last year on the on the security. That's, again, I think, uh, you know, an artifact of a lot of pool for the technology from the, you know, from the applications or layer ones during the bull cycle. And like people rolling out like very immature, you know, ad hoc 
like bridges and like solutions that don't make any sense in the long term, mm -hmm. right? And so they all got like compromised. They're all pretty centralized for, for practical reasons. So unfortunately, it had a big, you know, yeah, stain on the interoperability. But it's nothing new than with any other new technology, right? Like we saw it when centralized exchanges were first being built, like every second exchange was hacked that, that actually doesn't follow, you know, good security practices, right? And people end up losing money. We saw it like in DeFi as well, when DeFi, like everybody was shipping an application, you know, putting funds in, like a lot of people end up still losing money, right? Like we saw last week, uh, unfortunately. So, you know, and the same thing with interoperability, you know, when there is a demand, like a lot of people kind of, create ad hoc solutions, you you get compromised. So it takes time to build things correctly from a secure perspective. But I think to my point earlier, if you actually build your application in an interchain native way, you can minimize the security risks, right? So things like cross-chain swaps, you actually take in a very minimal ephemeral risk during the process of your transfer, but there is no like, you know, you don't need to build like hundreds of millions of liquidity of extra things. And so as we get more and more to leverage like general message passing and interchain native deployments, the risk that you will have to take on the underlying interoperability infrastructure will be kind of lower and lower. Got it. So, so, so another thing, you know, related to this is, uh, um, I, I'm, I'm sorry that you must have answered this type of question a thousand times. Um, but, you know, <laughs> I have to ask, uh, because like when, when we talk about any, um, you know, new technologies, new applications. So, um, your approach uh, to like a cross chain messaging in terms of your infrastructure architecture is, uh, like different from some of your competitors, right? So, um, mm -hmm. People can go research. You can go research yourself. Who who are the competitors of XLR? <laughs> so, um, what what do you like from your point of view? Like, what what's what's the what's the pros and cons, um, in terms of the architecture that that XLR built? Yeah. So, good question. Yeah, I think like on a very high level, right? I would say you can characterize uh, two things. A kind of a XLR is a decentralized network on its own. Right. So, and I think a lot of the other competitors, they're more centralized, right? Like they, they have like centralized relayers, oracles, validators, whatever those components are. Centralized technologies, you know, it's very easy to roll out across multiple chains, right? Mm -hmm. Exchange has been doing that for the last, you know, 10 years. You put a database, you put like a couple of validated nodes, you read messages, you write. It's not rocket science. How do you make it actually decentralized? Well, that's much harder, right? How do you make sure it's robust and, you know, reliable and has strong liveness and, and safety properties? You have to have decentralized stack. So, um, so it's definitely kind of a harder to build, but that's what, that's the technology that sort of lasts, right? Um, at the end of the day. So that's one point. Um, I think the second one, I'll say like a lot of our competitors think about how do you build bridges and connect A and B? And I think what we're trying to do with Axler is build an interoperable network, right? So it's a blockchain. It actually, you know, it has its own like virtual machine layer that we announced a couple of weeks ago. And you can build at the interoperability layer, various protocols and various connections, right? Customize your security, be able to, you know, extend your security model, um, be able to issue things like, you know, naming services at the interoperability layer and so on and so forth. And so by, by, but that's a, the big differentiator, I would say, between what Axel is doing and a lot of competitors where they talk about kind of a message passing, right, and things like that, which is fine. Um, 
and we are trying to build like an interoperability network that has uh, different properties and different ecosystem and uh, um, it has like translation, it has route and many to many and so on and so forth. So you can think of it as a, I would say like, you know, abstractly like difference between building like a railroad between like A and B, right, or a bridge and building like a, a airport hub, right? Where you can come in and you can fly to many other destinations and it's like very efficient and like optimized for travel, right? And so Axler is kind of a, you know, an airport uh, sort of hub um, that has kind of good properties and connectivity. So when you say like uh, uh, yours is more decentralized and in like in what sense, if you can like uh, elaborate on that? So the Axel network is based on proof of stake consensus. Mm -hmm. So it's a decentralized validator set. Uh, the validators in the Axler are responsible for processing cross-chain messages, right? So every time you send in a cross-chain transaction, no individual, you know, is authorized to authorize this transaction. It's the entire set of Axler validators that have to reach a consensus, and only then the transaction gets, you know, relayed and posted on the destination chain, right? So you have security through decentralization. Every validator has a very, you know, unique deployment environment. So you have diversity of deployments, right? And that's how you get security. Um, yeah, and for a lot of other approaches, it's like one or two, you know, like oracles or relayers or validators that are just running and validating the message. You don't, you don't actually have a large committee of members um, that are authorizing messages. So that's the difference. So do you think um, there is some kind of, any kind of, cost or speed advantage regarding uh, Axelar's approach? Because I, you know, like uh, decentralized, more secure, that's well and good. At the end of the day, unless something terribly wrong happens, like when sun's shining, people don't care whether how decentralized or undecentralized you are. Uh, but people do care about, you know, other properties other features that allow them to do things cheaply and, and quickly. Yeah. So can you yeah. talk about that? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I actually think at the networking layer, I'm, I would have to check, but I think we connected more chains than anyone else, mm -hmm. right? The reason is because Axelar is a programmable network layer. So that means you can program it to do things efficiently. And if you have to repeat something 10 times, you can put it at the network layer. So it's repeated, you know, 10 times with one transaction, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, onboarding like EVM chains for us, like a couple maybe days of like testing, but then it's like literally four or five transactions you run on the network layer. And then the EVM chain is onboarded. How fast right? can that, you, that's what how I'm, fast can you onboard a chain, new chain, EVM chain? EVM chains, I mean, we onboard the new chain like every two weeks right now. Okay. Right? So, um, on the EVM layer, like, and most of it is just testing and like just making sure all the other services get plugged in. Mm -hmm. The actual connection of the network layer is, is very, very efficient. Um, I think the second property is that because Axelar serves as a hub, every time you make a connection, you automatically interoperable with everything else that's been connected, mm -hmm. right? And so that's a property of a hub spoke model versus like peer-to-peer -peer connections, right? So in a peer-to-peer -peer connection model, you know, if you and I are connected and I'm connected with someone else, if you want to talk to them, you have to set up another connection, mm. right? You have to establish another path. Um, with Excel, you don't have to do this, right? If we all connected to one protocol, one network, and so you have very strong like composability effects of, of the network itself. Um, and yeah, I think like back to your point, certainly it's not all, all about security, but I do think a lot of it actually has to, does come down to, 
kind of programmability, right? And like the fact that we can code a lot of logic at the Excel network with the VM layer, developers can code themselves now. So we actually have like a bunch of projects there. People are making connections with like Near, with Polkadot, with other ecosystems themselves, mm -hmm. right? And like we're helping them. This is the template. This is the format to follow. And so that's a that's the power of a actual network, right? Where you can have contracts that people can reuse, right? People can uh, modify, can can rewrite. And so yeah, I think to your point that that's where it's going to be our you know, key advantage over the long term is the, the fact that you can, um, we have a shared programmable environment at the network layer. Mm, okay, that's that that's interesting. So uh, I don't know if you have a view on this, but I'm curious, uh, you know, since, since you deal with, uh, you know, you onboarding new chains all the time, um, do you have a view in terms of uh, the direction of, uh, you, you know, chain architecture in terms of general purpose versus application specific? Well, like, which one is are you more bullish about? Great question. Uh, I mean, I think there is a need for both of them. You know, I know it's a, it's a, you know, kind of a maybe political yeah. answer, but it actually is technical. <laughs> it's, it's, That's it's not going to pass. Okay. <laughs> not going to pass. Okay. How, how about this? Here's what I tell to the developers, right? Usually, uh, frankly, uh, so when they say, you know, which chain to build on, I, I tell them, look, like, what are you, what are you actually building? Do you have a product market fit? If you don't have a product market fit, if you just experimented, go launch on a general purpose chain that has the most liquidity, the most users, like get a couple of users, make sure people actually like your product, right? <laughs> um, so that that's all you have to care mm -hmm. about. Uh, just go and build, uh, you know, on, on the cheapest, on the on the on the most liquid chain. Um, from there, the question is, how big? Can your application get and where are you going to scale okay so if your application demands a lot of traffic a lot of transactions you want to make sure that your application stands there you know during high peak hours and things like that then you need to think about you know how do i isolate your how do i isolate your resources right um and um then potentially like an app chain is more suited for you and you should go and do that and we've saw we saw this with the dydx mm -hmm. right that, that, that that's exactly what happened you know they build like on general shared environments um they said those are not good enough then they migrated you know to starkware now they're saying okay now we have to go to cosmos and build our own app chain why is because they they know there's a product market fit for their application right they know there's the users but they need to have full control of their stack and resources and make sure users always pay cheap, cheap, cheap gas and like the transactions get processed and not bottlenecked. And so they go to their own stuff. So it is much harder to build your own app chain, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you should not do it from day one if you are launching an application that you don't know, like has a you know product market fit, right? You just experiment. And so I would say kind of app chains and general purpose uh, uh, or app chains are there only when you know that you actually, you know, building something that people care about so you can invest the resources to scale it and to control the full stack. If you are a couple, you know, couple guys in a startup and like finding a new DeFi application or NFT, just go build on like general purpose chain that has the best, you know, the most users, the most liquidity, get a product market fit and kind of see what your growth path is. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. And also um, what I'm, what I suspect is, it's really it's market conditions because it's in this environment it's much harder to take off as any like single application without uh, you know security like a liquidity backing um, to start from scratch right in this uh, bear market and also um, I think what's going to happen is you you will you will start to see some experiments from the larger like Web two point five kind of projects. 
they start to move to their own chain. You know, like Reddit has Polygon NFTs. They can have other uh, NFTs on other chains. But you know, at some stage, they could have their own have their own chain, have their own you know swap, and if they are big enough, right? So. Uh, those kind of applications with existing user bases that they can port over to Web3. And they started, they start some of these uh, app specific chains. And as technology mature, the cost of uh, deploying decline. Uh, at, at, at some level, I don't know if it, it's, uh, it's going to be, I hope one day, I think it will, it will be, I think one day it will be as cheaply as like a deploying like a Squarespace website, is that kind of thing. Um, but that's uh yeah. that's a little bit far off but um aside from the blockchains do you see any other uh you know technologies in 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 terms of distributed ledgers that are seeing some uh seeing some green shoots so to speak because uh before okay so a few years back before like the crypto crazy like a crypto bull cycle started like uh, blockchain was not the end all and be all of like a decentralized database or computing, right? So people were talking about all, all sorts of distributed ledgers. Um, any of that getting any traction still? I don't think so, right? Like I think, you know, uh, it is sort of a pretty much narrative driven, right? And I would say like a blockchain has like the narrative that, you know, this is the technology that you use, right? To <laughs> to kind of build a decentralized and, and, and uh, you know, robust uh, system. Um, you know, to, to your point, I think the topic has been around for, you know, decades, right? Like from both kind of research and like experimentation and like, you know, and some, some of the products been built around them. Um, but I would say, yeah, kind of the narrative of blockchain and the ecosystem kind of evolve on its own, right? That kind of created its own like parallel parallel trajectory to the um, to the universe with some uh, kind of a institutional corporate like clients that we chat with. They actually like deploy pseudo blockchain distributed ledger. I don't actually know what properties it has, right? Uh, you know, I think like some some of them are actually blockchain. Some of them are you know, uh, just decentralized systems, and they want to connect those with uh, with actual public ledgers, right? So I think that's an interesting, you know, kind of longer term, but a pretty interesting connection. Um, to your point, like, I don't actually think blockchains should be or will be disconnected, right? That you should be able to say, you know, maybe this part of my application logic needs to be posted on a public ledger, this part of the application logic needs to be in a private ledger, because it has like my customer transactions or private information or, um, you know, uh, IP information that I need to protect, and like those things will just kind of talk to, to one another, right? Um, and what you have in the private, you know, world of private ledger, may go under different names and you know and, and words, uh, blockchain distributed ledger, whatever, whatever makes sense. I would say, but it's it's a it's a very good point. Yeah. So I asked because uh, uh, you know I was just talking to on, on another episode I did with uh, you know. Um, we are going to see some like these uh, CBDC or enterprise level kind of yeah. uh, pseudo blockchain solutions, as you as you put it, <laughs> start to emerge, right? So, um, what's a like? A, um, do, is is there any like? Is there existing stack technology stacks for connecting these different solutions, or is there something that is like uh, not just like a blank space right now? 
Yeah, I'm in pretty blank space, I would say, for the most part. So we're we're chatting with uh, some of the you know some of the clients that want to launch these like permissions or um, you know blockchains in one way or another, and we we're helping them like you know spec out how does connectivity look to the outside world and uh, how does uh, um, how does liquidity flow back and forth and things like that. It is a pretty blank space. I think it's blank because they're still figuring out a lot of their stack in parallel, right? Um, some of them are customized. Some of them. You know, work with like Polygon, right, uh, to launch like the the supernets, um, all in the earlier phases. It's still it's clear that something will happen, right? And I think uh, you know, uh, pretty real use cases and interesting use cases, but um, because you're dealing with a lot of like corporate venture, right, and like you know, um, traditional like processes and legal structure, I think things will just take longer there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, but you know, I I, I do think that some of them. They will come to some level of fruition. Whether how 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 good uh, what's the quality of the product or what's the adoption level? That's a totally different question. But my mental model is things like you know, if you look at Netflix, which started this like video streaming thing, and now is like every large media company is having their own uh, similar service. Now it's like streaming is like a very commodity commoditized. Uh, thing right it's not just netflix anymore if you look at other like uh, uh another example is like you look at the um uh, payment uh transactions you had like uh in like um startup type of uh innovators like Venmo, right and then now you have the bank net traditional traffic banks networks they have their own similar kind of services um and the whole space has become like a commoditized. But the, I think this is my point is this is something that I see happening in in, in blockchain uh, or in the distributed ledger or whatever Web three space in the future as well. You will have like a Web three concepts um, that is evergreen, but how those concepts are executed in an infrastructure level that will like diverge over time. Um, but anyway. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, you know, Fed Pay is based on. Do they do they use any type of a ledger on the back end? <laughs> I think it's just SQL. Uh... <laughs> there we go. Well, that, yeah, uh, it'll be interesting to see. I think like some of the other, you know, kind of a corporate banks, right? Like what they actually end up doing. Um, I think like you have a lot of these like stablecoin discussions, but I think some of them, like you said, like just SQL databases. <laughs> some of them are more decentralized. So I'm I'm going to ask you like uh, uh, my most uh, uh, the the question that I'm most looking forward to to ask fund founders is um, uh, what what have you learned as an entrepreneur like uh, share share with us some some entrepreneurial wisdom because I know like you you are like a very smart person you have like a, a, you were like a PhD and you're a professor you have like academic background right so yeah. Um... Okay, good, good question. I guess uh, first is, I think it's pretty naive. I think a lot of people are saying this, but you know, I think like the people that you start working with at a company kind of matters a lot, right? And uh, you know, kind of choosing the right team um, for the type of company that you're trying to build, I think is is really, really important. I know everybody says this, but you know, certainly a lesson that I uh, I learned, uh, you know, part hard way, part good way. <laughs> um, I think the yeah, this, the second thing, um, 
I mean, especially like last couple of years, like you have to have a, you know, really, um, really tough skin, right? <laughs> you know, to survive in the space. Uh, like it's been, an, you know, frankly, an emotional roller coaster. Yeah, right? to be fire, fireproof, waterproof. <laughs> Fireproof, waterproof, bank, <laughs> <laughs> bank crashing proof, you know, stable coin crashing proof. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like to me, that that has been like um, I think one of the things that's which is sort of being able to detach sort of emotions, right? Sometimes like deal with like in crises, like there's you know uh, projects going down, banks going down, you know, like bugs and like things like that. And I think the crypto space evolves so rapidly, and there's know pretty significant like value or uh, at stake usually whenever you're building like interoperability right like you know we launched it in like first week we had you know 100 i think over 100 million in like volume right like that's you know for a protocol that's sort of fresh it's it's a lot right like mm -hmm. and you know it takes time for these technologies to mature so um yeah and i would say like to me i think that that that's the biggest thing is you know um having a really Kind of a taking care of yourself, making sure you know you kind of exercise, you know you do all the right things, knowing when to decouple like emotions, so you can like jump you know in the crisis and actually uh, you know be able to to navigate. I think is 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 pretty hard. And I think the last thing you know I just mentioned is like we did it very deliberately, but being able to prepare for volatility and like cycles, right? I think crypto has like the cycles every couple of years, up and down. Um, so if you're trying to build a long-lasting company, you have to you have to assume there is going to be a cycle, you know, a year or two from now. Uh, it may be an up cycle, it may be the down cycle, and then you have to change your strategy based on, you know, based on that to make sure you can account for both things, right? In a good cycle, you want to have all the right pillars in place. In a bad cycle, you need to have, you know, enough capital, right? And uh, kind of uh, resources to kind of survive and continue building through things. And so, yeah, to me, that's the, the final pieces. If you're building something long-term, like, Assume things are going to go bad <laughs> and think what's your strategy is going to be on that and assume things are going to go good at some point and like think about what's your strategy on that. Yeah, think three years ahead. Um, yeah, exactly. uh, very, uh, very good point. Well, on the upside, though, you know, um, when you when you're 100 years old, uh, uh, you're writing a memoir, you, you will have no shortage of materials to use. Um, for sure. Well, I have to record some of it. It's it like, you know, one week is like a year, right? Like it just goes by so fast. <laughs> exactly. Well, Sergey, uh, thank you so much uh, for the conversation today. It's been uh, so much fun. Awesome. Thanks for having me.